from my home studio. Welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. When I leave the bridge, I feel as if I have helped these parents engage in the very, very early part of their Jewish parenting in a positive way. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman. Today, we'll be returning to a topic that's that I said last month has been the punchline of a million jokes, but is increasingly the subject of serious conversations. I'm talking about the ancient commandment of circumcision, Brit Milah, Bris. Last month, we heard from two critics of the practice, and this month, we're speaking to a moil, Rabbi Kevin Bernstein, whose Evolve essay is titled simply, we should continue practicing Brit Milah. Rabbi Bernstein offers a reconstructionist perspective on the ancient practice, and in some ways, his take is not that far off from our guest last month, uh, the novelist Gary Steingart and business strategist Max Buckler. He certainly doesn't advocate that all Jews need to do this in order to be considered Jews or accepted into Jewish communities. But at the same time, he does offer a very different take than we heard last month. I mean, how could he not? He's a moil performing circumcision, and, and this is an invaluable voice in the larger circumcision conversation. So repeating what I said last episode, the, the Evolve Project, Reconstructing Judaism, we're not taking a position on, on this sort of for or anti-circumcision. When it comes to Jewish ritual and communal behavior, we think no conversation should be off the table, and it's evolves function, mission to really bring nuanced, respectful dialogue to the public square. And though our guests last month and this month didn't appear together, it really felt to me in the two episodes like they were like they were talking to one another in a way that the ancient rabbis like to describe as an argument for the sake of heaven. So I think that's that's what we're having and facilitating here. So a warning again, this, this episode is, is about circumcision. There at times can be graphic and at times can be a little bit of a tough listen. So just um, be prepared. As a reminder, all of the essays, all of the Evolve essays are available to read for free at evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. You certainly don't have to read Rabbi Kevin Bernstein's essay to follow this interview today, but it certainly helps and deepens your experience. Okay, now it's time for our guest. Rabbi Kevin Bernstein was a veterinarian for many years, including a long stint where he practiced in Israel. Following his 2007 graduation from the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, he's been located in the Philadelphia area, serving as a director of education in synagogues, as a school rabbi and teacher in day schools, um, as an interim rabbi, and also as a moil in the greater Philadelphia area. And his moil practice has been hallmarked by the inclusion of both interfaith and gay and lesbian parents, as well as converts. And um, we're, really, we're really excited to, to have him here today as a conversation partner. Rabbi Kevin Bernstein, welcome to the show. It's, it's great to have you. Thank you very much. It's great to be here, Brian. So I guess I, I, I just wanted to start. Um, I, I know you and I have talked, you and I have definitely 
talk privately. We used to work together. But for our listeners, if if sort of standing on one foot, you could take us through a little bit how how you 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 started out as as a veterinarian and became a rabbi and a moil in in a process. So is there that this is years of your life? Is there is there a a, a you know a, a thumbnail sketch of how that how that all happened? Yes, it certainly is. Um, yes, it is a little bit unusual um, to have. Uh, first uh, studied veterinary medicine and to have practiced and then afterwards to decide to become a rabbi and work in the Jewish professional world. But I am one of those rare people. And um, in the process and during the study uh, that I went through to become a rabbi, I uh, happened to be uh, hired by a uh, mohel in the uh, Philadelphia area um, to tutor his uh, son for bar mitzvah. And in the course of that relationship, he uh, discovered and came to realize that I was a trained veterinarian. I'd like to think that he also discovered and came to recognize what kind of person I was, what kind of Jew I was, maybe what kind of rabbi I would be. And so at the end of that process, he asked me if I would like to train to become a mohel. And to be honest, um, it sounded very interesting and perhaps fun. And one thing that was made it easier for me to make that decision, and I assume that made his decision also easier, is that he knew that I had the medical and the surgical training and background so that that wouldn't be a piece that is very, very difficult for me to master and feel comfortable with. And that's really how it started. And I continued to train with him for a couple of years until I went out on my own. I will add one other piece is that the training that I uh, undertook as a rabbi at RRC was um, really helpful for me to study this and do this in the way that I had preferred, I would almost say that I got a rabbinical degree with a minor in circumcision. And what I mean by that is that uh, for those people who don't know this, the curriculum for the reconstruction for reconstructionist rabbis was and still remains to be very um, chronological in terms of learning about Judaism and Judaic civilization from the biblical period to the rabbinic period, et cetera, et cetera. And so I sort of had the opportunity to study what Brit Milah was like, what circumcision was like during all of those periods. And uh, so that turned out to be really fortunate for me and very enjoyable for me. So that's kind of how my training uh, morphed and how it began and how it continued. I, I, that's really interesting. I don't think that the, I know that the college doesn't follow that that sequential model model anymore. It was a very unique model, but that's that's interesting. So we actually have records of what circumcisions were like in in the biblical period and the Talmudic period. I mean, I, I, that's not something I've ever heard much about. Well, like all of our history, we don't have too much to tell us exactly how Jews practiced anything during the biblical period. 
what we would go by is we can go by the documents of what we have, but as um, you know, uh, most people who have studied Judaism in our ancient texts, um, very little bit of the Bible and the Bible's narrative is backed up by um, archaeological evidence. And the same thing goes for, um, for what circumcision was like. But we can certainly look and see what um, uh, those who came afterwards thought that that was like. And in some cases, it's kind of an imagination. The, the example I give is that the rabbis of the rabbinic period, I'm not sure if they imagined or if they liked to imagine that the people of our Bible practiced Judaism in the exact same way that they did, that, uh, you know, Abraham went and and, and, and Dobbin three times a day, or kept kashrut, or did any of these things. And in fact, we don't have really any evidence about what they would do. But uh, for the biblical period, I looked at the biblical text and saw how the Bible relates to circumcision. And so that was what I was able to do step by step by step by step. I would say almost uh, to the um, uh, annoyance of my classmates who every time I was making a final presentation in class, it was, okay, here we go. We're going to learn more about the biblical period and circumcision, or we're going to hear more about pastoral care and circumcision. And we're going to hear more about, uh, you know, texts about circumcision. So it sort of became a, um, an interest of mine. And like I said, a little bit treated as a, um, as a minor uh, in my uh, rabbinical study. So just just for some terms uh, for for our audience and and for me too, I mean, circumcision, brit milah, are these are these terms interchangeable? Do they mean different things? No, they're, they're not, and that's and that's a very good point, and that's really important to keep that in mind when you're having any sort of discussion. Circumcision is a procedure. The procedure involves removing um, uh, part or most of the foreskin. Um, and Brit Milah is the ritual that really was not developed until uh, that we, we don't know if it was developed anywhere before the rabbinic period in the first couple of um, hundreds of years after um, uh, the, the, the turn of the millennia, the year zero. Um, in the biblical period, there are certainly descriptions of circumcision but with not very much detail. And if you look at those different descriptions, I would say with the possible exception of the first time that we get an indication that Abraham circumcised himself and his clan, and very specifically his eight-day-old son, that's the closest thing that we get to for a description of Brit Milah. And in fact, that was the model upon which the rabbis built their um, invention and their creation of Brit Milah, of a Brit Milah ceremony. Um, the other term that we should bring in is the word bris, and bris is basically the Jewish Yiddish um, equivalent of Brit Milah. Uh, so those are the different terms that we're dealing with. There's bris, there is Brit Milah, and then there's circumcision. And circumcision, again, is just the procedure. And uh, Brit Milah is the ritual that um, involves the, includes the procedure. So I guess I'm, I'm curious um, how, you, how you understand and, and relate to the, 
the the Brit Mila, and and if you have a sense of why so many non-Orthodox Jews continue continue to choose this for their for their sons, it's you know I think we're not. I, I would assume that the majority are not motivated by by or or this idea that God is telling them to do it, so they must do, they must do it. So so why are why are people still doing this in such large numbers? Yes, I believe your assumption is correct. So I want to be clear that uh, it's very difficult to get really good data on exactly um, what pe- what people are doing, and also why, and maybe even more clearly, um, uh, more specifically, why people are doing this. So your question is a great one, and it's one that I think about a lot. And I will tell you that um, most of my answer is based upon conversations that I've had with um, individuals and, and, and couples of parents who are um, speaking to me about this. I, I, I hesitate to use the word market niche, but I think that I think that that, that probably describes it. But the people who I serve um, and actually who turn to me well in advance and they have questions about circumcision and the impression that I get is um, uh, along the lines of what you sort of presumed and what you hinted. Um, I think that there are very few current Jewish parents who circumcise their children and have a Brit Milah ceremony because they feel that this is something that God commands. And they may not even be sure about the existence of God, but um, I think that the vast majority of people who do it um, and who carry on at least the circumcision part of it, they do it for lack of a more um, elegant term um, because everybody else is and because that's what they do. Now, I will say that's what most Jews do. The the idea of doing something that everybody else does um, can at first seem a little bit superficial. You know, why do something just because everybody else does? Uh, God knows there are plenty of things that everybody else does that maybe we would like to stop or to uh, think about more clearly. But but in this case, I will say that it becomes a very... um, tribal not in a primitive sense, but tribal in a positive sense, that it is something that is very bonding between us. And I actually think that that is the strongest reason why most people continue to do this. And um, that, I think, uh, uh, gives the the ritual, especially when it's done in a communal setting, um, a very um, powerful piece of emotion and a powerful addition of uh, feelings and a sense of community, especially intergenerational. And um, that's what I would guess is going through, and I don't know if it's going through the minds and the hearts of people, but that is one of the reasons why I think uh, the major reason why it continues to be, uh, circumcision continues to be a practice of most um, if not uh, the the vast majority of uh, Jews, and I would say around the world, can you can you walk us through a little bit, like what happens when you when you when you just arrive in 
presumably you're back to arriving in somebody's home and, and, or, or, or a, a function hall and, 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 and officiating a, a brief Mila, like how long are you there? What, what, you know, sort of what, what are the steps that happen? Sure. Um, I am going to take a step back because I think it's really important, especially as it relates to um, myself being a reconstructionist and a reconstructionist uh, rabbi. Uh, whenever I get a call, um, when parents are at the, in, in some stage of pregnancy and they're asking um, about the possibility and what it would mean and what it's about and any questions that they have, or they're just checking to see about my availability, what I always tell them is that the best thing for us to do is to have a conversation a couple of weeks before, um, before the due date. And I like to do it two weeks before and have this conversation because as I tell parents that, um, especially if they are first time parents, that the first two weeks um, or the first week after a child is born is absolutely the wrong time for any uh, human being to be processing and to figure out and to make decisions. And so I very much encourage them to um, discuss what we've discussed in that conversation beforehand um, and to basically have the ability when um, the hours after they've given birth to a baby, they can say to themselves, okay, remember we discussed that we wanted to do this. Well, I think I want to do that. And the reason I bring that up is for me, I am not about uh, uh, performing and officiating at their Brit Milah in a way that I want to, that I feel needs to be, and that, yes, we must do this then, and we must do this here in this place, and we must do this with this prayer and that prayer. Instead, what I do, and I think this is a, a lot more typical with Reconstructionist rabbis and with Reconstructionist educators, is that I want to do this in a way that is most meaningful to them. And this is all within the context of making sure that it is a safe and quick procedure uh, for the baby um, himself. Right. So. I have no I have no recollection of what you actually said 11 or 12 years ago, but I just I just remember you were very patient and took took a lot of time uh, with with us yes. uh, a couple a right. couple of weeks before before birth. So. Yeah. And, and I will say, um, look, you know, I I hesitate a little bit to be disparaging to other Mohels, but I will say that one of the things that I learned about the way other Mohalim uh, practice is a little bit opposite to that is they. They're glad to hear from you beforehand. They say whatever, and they say, okay, so let's talk uh, when you have a healthy baby boy, and we say mazel tov, and then we'll start then. And um, I always push back against that because I think that, in a sense, it's almost unfair to, especially for first parents who haven't, first-time parents who haven't been through the birth of a child, um, to expect them to, at that point, to be able to make decisions. I always thought that it's a lot more fair, a lot more reasonable, and um, a, a lot more productive to, you know, speak to them beforehand and to do that and to let them know, you know, here's the different things that you might want to consider and that you might want to discuss. And I, I very much encourage them to discuss it between two weeks before and when they're giving birth to it and when they're, you know, going to give birth to a child. I don't know how many of them do that, 
but at least it makes me feel better that I've given them the chance to do that. So that's correct. And by the way, the other thing that I also tell um, anyone is that if they are ambivalent at all about circumcision at all, in other words, if one or both of the parents are really wondering whether or not they even want to circumcise their child, I tell them that that's a conversation that we should probably start immediately just because that conversation takes a lot more to process as opposed to, you know, a, a conversation about when they want to have their Brits or where they want to have their Brit Milah or who they want to invite. You know, those are all questions that I, I think are fine to process a couple of weeks before. The decision about whether to either circumcise their child or not, that's a decision I think that takes a lot more thought and a lot more conversations. And so I, I recommend that those conversations start as soon as possible. So I do want to get into it and maybe maybe we'll circle back and, and get, you know, more of a blow by blow account if, if there's time. Um, I mean, you we want are me to just give a very quick, you know, of, of what that looks like. Um, sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. So basically what what it looks like is uh, I will um, arrive at the house uh, about 15 or 20 minutes before we're scheduled to start. Um, I will, you know, do my setup with my instruments and uh, getting everything prepared for what I need to do. I'll usually check in with the parents and I'll have decided who are you giving sort of honorary roles who are going to be recognized as serving this role or that role. I, uh, uh, after uh, 15, 20 minutes and allowing for, uh, let's say, Jewish time for everybody to get there who the parents want to be there, we will then start the ceremony. The ceremony really does not take more than a half an hour total. There's about a 10-minute introduction with certain liturgy and prayers that are traditionally said. It takes about 10 minutes for the procedure from really start to finish. And I mean start as in when I take the baby from the parents and start to put the baby down on the table to the point where I'm picking up the baby after having completed the procedure. Um, after uh, the last 10 minutes is actually not um, officially part of a brit milah, but a, um, an official announcement or pronouncement of the baby's Hebrew name is traditionally done at this point. And that maybe takes about 10 minutes. And um, when that's done, it's over. Um, and then what I will usually do is I will uh, dismiss everybody sort of to go have um, what is a strong tradition of having a festive meal as part of the celebration. And while people are getting started, I'll clean up for myself, put my instruments together, and then um, meet with the parents and caretakers and the baby and go over what should be proper aftercare of what they should expect over the next couple of um uh, you know, uh, 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 days and, um, and, and that's it. So that's, that's what, that's what it looks like. If you're enjoying this interview, please hit the subscribe button and be among the first to know when a new episode appears. If you're a new listener, welcome. Bruchim Habayim. Check out the back catalog for lots of other groundbreaking. Check out the back catalog for lots of other groundbreaking conversation. And please take a minute to give us a five-star rating or leave a review. Positive ratings, reviews really help other people find out about the show. Okay, back to our interview with Rabbi Kevin Bernstein. So we're we're talking at a time where there's, I think, a small but growing effort to um, push to have 
to make sure that 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 families, Jewish families that that don't choose to have their sons circumcised are are in are included and embraced within Jewish life. And and there's also, I think, a chorus of of, of folks who who care about Judaism who are saying we should we should at least rethink this. Like and 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 um there 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 are evolve essays along that along those lines. And we we just interviewed um one of one of the authors, Max Buckler, and and also the the author Gary Steingart, who's written written um about his own experiences as, as getting circumcised as a seven-year-old. Um, I guess I, I wanted to get into, get, get into some of the, some of the points and, and, and objections they've made, you know, as, as, as a way of really modeling discussion of a, of a difficult topic. Um, I mean, I mean, I guess, I guess I wanted to start with um, in your essay, you seem, you seem fairly convinced or, or at least, you seem unconvinced that that a baby undergoes significant emotional physical trauma at at the time or or afterwards is that is that fair to say and and i guess what what leads you to be reasonably confident about that yeah yeah and and i think that first of all i want to make it clear that um let's talk about the different things of trauma that you have um that you have brought up here. So first of all, I want to make it clear that yes, it certainly is traumatic for the child. Um, anything where the child's response is to cry, we can say that there is some sort of trauma that's there. The difficulty that we have, and this is especially a difficulty with um, eight day old and infants, and actually much beyond that, as any parent will tell you, um, anyone who has you know raised infants, is uh, to identify um, what the crying is about, what the trauma is about, and really the extent of the trauma. And I reject the notion that some Mohalim have gone to um, uh, say that, um, that it's painless or that um, this actually makes the child feel better. The only way that we can really judge what the child's experience is is by seeing the child and being in the room and seeing what the child's response is. And, um, and yes, it is, it is there and it is, um, it is traumatic and we can do lots of things to try to make it less traumatic. And, and by the way, one way we can make the circumcision less traumatic is by giving a local injectable anesthetic so that the child is completely numb in his entire genital area. Well, that's fine, except anyone who has seen this injection of anesthetic given to a child sees that that's traumatic. And so many Moalim have decided that um, uh, the trade-off between one trauma and another isn't, um, isn't severe enough that they decide, okay, so let's do this and this way. And in fact, the, um, the board, uh, the, the College of uh, Pediatricians in uh, the United States have indicated that um, circumcision is an elective procedure and there are uh, very little downsides of doing it or not doing it, and therefore it's elective, but they have indicated that um, some type of anesthetic should be used to try to minimize the amount of trauma to the child. So that's the first thing in terms of the physical trauma. 
The other thing that you mentioned, and I will tell you where um, I'm coming from, is the degree to which um, this trauma is remembered either through dreams or through um, uh, later thoughts or later emotional difficulties. And I will say that most of my feeling about that is basically, um, uh, you know, based upon, I don't know if it's hundreds, there might be thousands of circumcised males who I know um, and have spoken to who do not relate to remembering anything, feeling that that was a trauma for them. And that is where that really comes from. And, and, I, and this is also backed up by um, you know, psychological research that this not, is not a, a major source of emotional difficulty or emotional trauma for um, adults in terms of that having remembered that feeling or whatever trauma they went through. And again, I want to emphasize I am not saying that there are not others who have had different experiences. That is um, understandable. And perhaps, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I feel and I sympathize for those people. But I do believe that um, it is very, very uncommon for uh, for people to remember pretty much anything um, when they were at the age of eight days old and even quite older. So, um, and, and that comes in a little bit to um, part of my practice also in terms of um, Dam. Uh, and I guess I'll, I'll give that, um, uh, if you want, I can go on a little bit more about what that is, but it, it comes down to um, the ages that I recommend or recommend against um, parents um, uh, dealing with any part of this um, uh, circumcision of Brit Milah. Or, um, or this other procedure that basically replaces a Brit Milah in kids who um, were circumcised earlier in their life, but wanted to um, uh, complete it with a Jewish ritual, and that ritual is called Brit Milah, Hatapatam, uh, uh, which I'd be uh, glad to talk about a little bit more if you want me to. I don't even know what it means. So here's what it is. Hatapatam uh, means literally a drop of blood. Um, Hatafadam is the ritual and procedure that is done for anyone and uh, who was circumcised earlier in their life, but wants to um, add this to the mitzvah, to the commandment that they are doing, that they weren't just circumcised. And in most cases, they were not circumcised uh, in a way for them to become Jews. Um, but now they want to become Jews or complete this mitzvah for any other reason. What it involves, and this is where it has an unfortunate name, and I'll explain why, um, it involves um, drawing even the smallest amount of blood um, from the area on the penis where the circumcision um, occurred earlier. It's the scar of where the foreskin was removed. And the reason I say that it is not very uh, aptly or accurately named is because um, it is a very, very uh, minor procedure. Um, I would have to say that it is painless, and that is judging by the number of the vast majority. No, 
all of the people for whom um, I have performed this on, their first reaction after I have done this is, did you do it yet? So the thing that I'm going to relate back to in terms of the um, memory and trauma is that to parents um, who have a young child who they are considering having this hatafadam uh, procedure done because they would like to do that in a in a in a um, a more observant way, I strongly recommend that they do not consider doing this between the age of three and 16. And the reason I say that is because I believe it's very, very difficult to judge uh, children of that age, what they're thinking and what they're feeling. And I tend to prefer that they wait till a time where they can be sure that the child is not experiencing it as this strange man came and did something to my, who I had never met before and did something to my genitals. I think that that is a little bit too fraught with other kinds of possibilities. So I recommend strongly against doing that during those ages. And to get back to my original point is before three years old, quite frankly, I don't think the kids remember it. Quick timeout. Are you inspired, enlightened, want to hit share on this conversation? Want to make sure there are more of them? If you'd like to support these groundbreaking conversations of Evolve on the podcast, the website, we have web conversations. You can click donate and support us. Make a statement about your values, the importance of the importance of covenantal conversation, as we like to say. Every gift matters. There's a donate link right in our show notes. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support. Okay, back to our regularly scheduled programming. I want to take us back a little bit to one of the points raised by our by our previous guest, um, uh, Max Buckler, which which I have to say, res- you know, I, I've wrestled with a little bit. It, it's not a question of Jewish law. It's a, it's a question of as as where where our our societal. Um, attitudes towards towards gender um are evolving and and expanding um you know does this does this procedure really you know celebrate prioritize or procedure ceremony does it ritual does it celebrate and prioritize maleness is there is there a way to to reconstruct it so it doesn't do that. I mean, I'm wondering what you what you thought of it. I mean, it was it was it was referred to, um, I think, on the show as you know, in a sense, uh, a a big gender reveal party, which which maybe not all of us are comfortable with. Yeah. So so first of all, the answer is absolutely yes. Um, in terms of it, certainly prioritizes um, male. Um, it makes um, uh, it was it was invented and it was formulated and created certainly by men who were getting together and deciding how they were going to celebrate or induct, I would say, new Jewish men into the Jewish fold. So without a doubt, that is the case. And I will say, in the same way that Jewish prayer was modeled and created as something that um, 
Jewish men were going to um, uh, partake in um, with the understanding and what they thought was a relief that uh, they said, well, Jewish women don't have to worry about prayer because it is time bound. And so that's not a big mitzvah, a commandment for them. Uh, they need to be concerned about other things, um, et cetera. So, uh, yes, that was the case. And I think that that still is the case. And um, as someone who grew up and had kids who, for instance, um, my grandparents and some of my parents would say things like, well, we'll come in if there's a Brit. But if it's just the daughter that's born, um, you know, we're not going to take a special trip from Israel to come visit you, et cetera. So, yes, that was definitely the case. Um, I would hope, and I think that that's much less the case now, but it is one of the burdens and one of the challenges with, um, with doing this, with, with doing this ritual. And, and there have been plenty of attempts um, with different amounts of success um, to sort of create a equal or different or parallel ritual to um, welcome uh, Jewish uh, daughters into the fold also. And, um, and I, I understand and I recognize that they may be separate, but are they equal? I don't know. You know, I think that that depends a lot on how we relate to it and a, a much less on whether earlier generations, you know, related to it. And I will say, I don't know if we are, I, no, I will say, I don't think that we're done with relating to this challenge about how we can make this so this um, isn't perceived or felt as preferential. Um, one of the ways that I look at it is that, um, look, if this is something that we know is problematic, so perhaps instead of looking at it as preferential for a boys, we might say, this is challenging. And so, you know what? Let's just do this for half of our babies. And the half that we will do is happens to be boys because it certainly makes a lot more sense and it's a lot more palatable for us to do this for our boys than to do it for our girls. And I think that to the degree to which we um, prefer or prioritize or privilege this as something that can be, that is done for males, that's sort of on us in terms of how we relate to it. And I will say that I believe that that is decreasing. Um, I'm not sure if the um, degree of sexism that still remains and will remain in Judaism is related very strongly to uh, or because we circumcise boys at a ritual. I would think that it's more of a symptom of, um, of, of some of that racism, excuse me, some of that sexism that we might have had um, uh, in previous years. So that's sort of the way I look at it. And I, and I, I don't, I, I'm not sure if this is one of the bigger issues. Um, I think the bigger issue that we have is performing an elective procedure on our children and what the consequences and risks and um, uh, of that are, um, as opposed to maintaining a tradition that we've um, had for thousands of years. It seems to me that that statistics are are 
Well, statistics are always fungible, but on circumcision can be hard to come by. I mean, to the extent you can talk about it in your experience, I mean, do 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 complications ever ever come up from the procedure? Is it extremely rare? Like, what's what's you? I mean, you've um, you've you've done enough of them. I, I'm I'm sure you've 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 seen the gamut at this point. Um, yes, complications certainly do come up. Um, most of them are extremely minor. And what do I mean by really minor? I will say that um, minor in terms of um, they may um, require um, an additional help or procedure done, again, without anesthetic by um, a Mohel or by a pediatrician. Um, and uh, that, I would say, is the most common of the um, uh, of the complications. Um, even less common than that is where um, the uh, foreskin isn't either properly or completely removed. And it is um, in a way or to the extent that one needs to wait until the child can undergo um, general anesthesia. And this would be done by, for instance, a urologist. Again, that is even more rare um, than that. And I, um, uh, the procedure and the statistics I've seen is that that is less than um, one to two percent that that occurs. Um, and again, that is something that has to wait to be resolved. And the thing that I have never heard is um, is where there is something that um, permanently damages. Um, uh, the penis, um, or, um, any part of the genitalia, um, to that extent. So I, I have never heard of that occurring among colleagues in the with Jewish an, community. With an, in, with an um, infant, in, right? I mean, yes. Cause on an older child or an adult, that's, that's probably a different story. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure if that, per, if that percentage is a different story, actually. So, you know, right. you're right. You're right that it's not that it's never, but my guess is that it is also, you know, before that. And 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 what we were speaking about were Mohalim. Um, and again, I do not know a Mohel um, unless he happens also, or he or she happens to be a um, a urologist that would attempt or do a circumcision on a child who any human being who is older than to three months old. So you were asking about Mohalim and kids, um, uh, kids of that age, I assume. Beyond that, it really needs to be and should be done by a, um, a physician and a certified surgeon. So I think I wanted to pack a couple of questions into one and really go a little deeper into the reconstruction, a reconstructionist approach to, to circumcision. I mean, you, you, you said you, you yeah. joked, you minored in it at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. I mean, my sense is that if circumcision didn't didn't exist today, there there wouldn't there wouldn't be an obvious need for it. Although that that could be wrong, we might it might perform a a, a sociological function, a, a sort of so, a way of bringing people together and marking time that nothing else quite does, but. 
my sense is that's not how reconstructing Judaism works. It doesn't ask like, would we would we invent this if it doesn't didn't exist? It's it sort of says, is is the way we look at this meaningful? And if not, how can we re-examine it to making meaningful and and only really in very rare cases do reconstruct, you know, does traditional reconstructionist thought say this? This traditional Jewish ritual has no merit. Let's let's stop doing it. So I guess I was wondering if you could take us through at least at a reconstructionist approach to, to circumcision um, and 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 some of the thought process behind that, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. It does. And by the way, I think that. We do. We do have a reconstructionist approach to this, and I'll and I'll tell you what I mean by that. I, I say. First of all, we think about it. We think about it. We study about it. We, you know, weigh pros and cons. We think about why, what this does for us, what this provides for us. And perhaps maybe one of the most important things is the, the phrase that we use that our past and our heritage gets a vote, but not a veto. And we do take into account um, the fact that for this has been part of our tradition, part of what we have done, part of we have, you know, what we, um, you know, feel sort of in our in our kishkas in our guts that we're supposed to do because we're Jews, and we take this into account. But under no circumstances do we say, oh, we have to keep this because it's what our generations do did, or because it's part of Jewish law, because it is part of Jewish law. And whenever we come across something that might be uncomfortable or we don't like it or we're not um, you know, comfortable with it or we find it ethically or morally or um, for any number of reasons, something that bothers us and that we're not comfortable with, we consider what we might do and what we might not do about it. Um, and the same thing goes for many of our traditions, whether it's praying um, separated by gender with the machitza, um, whether it's um, uh, different forms of kashrut that some of the things that we do and that we don't do, or even the evaluation of kashrut, even the way that we slaughter animals. All of these things are things that are, you know, come into question. And I think as Reconstructionists, we think about them, we study them, and then we make a decision for ourselves as to what we are going to do with in mind giving our traditions and Jewish law um, a vote, but not a veto. I, I mean, it's hard to quantify, but but if you if you read everything from tablet to JTA to the forward, there 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 does seem to be a growing volume of 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 Jewish questioning and criticism of, of the right of circumcision. And I'm wondering how you react to that. Is it, is it, Oh, good. They're, you know, they're thinking about it. They're, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're questioning this or, 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 you know, do, do you, do you react in a, in a different way? And, and um, I, I guess I could, I could leave it. I could leave it there. Okay. So great. That's a great question. And, and, and by the way, it, it doesn't matter in terms of my reaction, but I will disagree with your premise. Um, uh, having been, you know, keeping an eye on this for 15 years, 
uh, for at least 15 or 20 years since I, you know, started rabbinical school. Um, m- my impression is that no, it's not growing. I get more the impression that there is a um, a constant but pretty level um, uh, amount of pushback. Um, th- that would be more of my uh, my impression. And although, and like you say, it's very difficult to see whether it's growing or not. But um, regardless, I would have the same reaction. And um, I want to preface the reaction by um, quoting one of my dearest colleagues who said to me that I'm probably one of the most anti-circumcision mohels who she knows. And the reason that she said that is um, not because I'm anti-circumcision, but that I I understand people's ambivalence with it, and I understand where they're coming from. And um, I would actually say that um, I don't see um, my role as promoting circumcision. Um, I I think that if a thousand years from now, or or a hundred years from now, or fifty years from now, we're not having the Brit Milah ceremony, um, I would say that I think we've lost something. But I will also say that uh, to the extent that we have thought about it, and especially if we think that it will um, provide for whatever we do instead, or perhaps if we do nothing instead, if we think, if the Jewish community and Jewish people think that that will provide um, an easier or better or more uh, meaningful way for people to engage in their Judaism, then I think that that's great. Um, and, I, and, I, and I'm all for that. And, and by the way, um, in a certain sense, um, I do see this happening even now. And what I mean by a certain sense is that I don't get the impression that less and less people are circumcising their sons, are having their sons circ- circumcised. But what I do perceive is that less and less people are feeling like they want to mark that with the Brit Milat ceremony. And to, um, and especially, I would put it in this term, in this way, okay, we're all right with circumcising, but really, you want us to have a party? You're suggesting that we have a party around it? And um, I think there's a lot of that feeling. And one of the things that Jewish people and future generations will need to decide is, okay, so if one of the reasons why you're circumcising your child is because you want to be part of the Jewish people, and by the way, I can't think of any other reasons why that they might want to do that. So do we want to include some sort of ritual that we could do, that we could add this to this, um, perhaps um, something uh, else or additional that we will do to uh, daughters to also keep them in the fold? And I think that that's great. if. Um, if and when people are thinking about those things and move forward with that. So along along those lines, I think I think we're about out of time. So I, I wanted to close just by following up and asking, you know, about about your role. What what is most satisfying um, about this? Is it is it walking, you know, scared and confused parents through a difficult time? Is it is it sort of being a link in a, in a Jewish chain, like what, as a rabbi who's, who's performed all, all kinds of rituals and ceremonies, there must be, you know, something about this that draws you 
draws you back uh, beyond just the fact you have you have the skills to do it? Yes, great. It's a great question. So, uh, one of my daughters used to describe, you know, um, uh, uh, class A fun and class B fun. So I will say class um, A. I won't use the word fun, but um, uh, enjoyment and appreciation of what I really, you know, what I really really like. And I will tell you that, you know, so class A enjoyment for me is, and and this is somewhat rare, but it is. Um, helping a couple with a brisk where um, they are both and their families are deeply engaged in Judaism and they really want to, um, and, and they're really on board. And um, I almost only have to provide the surgical procedure because the family or families that are there are, um, are able to Sing some and to support each other and know what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. So that's always fun, but I will say that that is um, a little bit rare and more so of the what I would call class B, which is um, uh, a little bit less uh, enjoyable for me, but to the extent that this happens much, much, much more often. So the quantity of experiences that I've had really leave me with a very, very strong feeling. And that is that um, when I leave the Brit, I feel as if I have helped these parents um, engage in the very, very early part of their Jewish parenting in a positive way, that they haven't felt like some guy came in here and did some procedure and charged me a lot of money and he didn't seem to care about what my experience was. He didn't seem to care about if I understood it. He didn't seem to care about anything, but just came in and did something that was important to him, right? And instead, I get a really, really good feeling when, for instance, um, grandparents of another faith will come up to me and say, thank you for doing it in a way that I really felt included. When... Um, uh, gay and lesbian couples will, or gay and lesbian individuals will say to me afterwards that they really appreciated that they felt included and they felt um, uh, engaged by me um, uh, in spite of the fact that they felt like that outside some other mohel or some other rabbi would not have engaged with them as seriously because of um, a lack of inclusivity. And that's that's what I get out of this. And that's the joy that I get out of, you know, having helped families under very adverse conditions, you know, remember where families are, remember where parents are a week after they've given birth. Okay. And, and to, to, to leave their Brit Milah um, after having them felt like it was a positive experience for them, it feels great. Kevin, thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, for, for taking the time to talk with us, to write the essay, to peel back the curtain a little bit and, and, uh, and, and engage, you know, and, and also engage with, with, with some of the critical questions. I, I think this was, um, this was a real service. And I, I you know, I, I hope, uh, I certainly hope future, future parents listen and, and it provides some insight. So I really thank you. You are very welcome. It's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to our interview with Rabbi Kevin Bernstein. 
next month we will be out of circumcision and into a new topic um and i guess after all this looking forward to switching gears so what do you think of today's episode i'd love to hear from you evolve is about meaningful conversations and you're part of that send me your questions comments feedback whatever you have you can reach me at b schwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org evolve groundbreaking jewish conversations is executive produced by rabbi jacob staub and edited by sam walks our theme song ilufinu is by rabbi miriam margols this show is a production of reconstructing judaism i'm your host brian schwartzman and i will see you next time